Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this week is the author, Kathleen Norris. You know, one of the benefits of doing a podcast, it gives me the opportunity to reach out to people whose work I've long admired and to see if there's any chance they would like to talk to me. It's always a joyful surprise when many of them say yes, and that was the case when I heard from Kathleen Norris, and she agreed to have a conversation. I was greatly formed in my early days of ministry by her books, The Cloister Walk and Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith. She's written numerous other poems and books as well, including Acedia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life, which we talk about a little in this episode. Kathleen recently wrote an article in the Christian Century magazine entitled, We Have to Be Willing to Begin Again. This is true of failures in writing, in faith, in life itself. Of course, she writes about failure in this article, and that inspired me to reach out. I'm so grateful for this rich conversation and the impact she's had on me and so many. I hope you enjoy it. Kathleen Norris, thank you so much for being on the Failing Boldly podcast. Thank you for having me. So in reading uh, your books, it seems like spirituality of place is of real importance to you. So I'd like to start as a way of introducing listeners who may not have read your works by talking about your move uh, from New York to South Dakota. You and your husband were poets in New York. And when you made the move, I can only assume that there were probably some of your friends who raised their eyebrows at that move. So I'm wondering if you could talk what precipitated that move and then any kind of uh, what the cultural transition was like for both for the both of you. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, uh, yes, our friends in New York, only except for one exception, uh, my wonderful boss would um, take out uh, an atlas and say, but there's nothing there. I mean, they were just you know, South Dakota to most New Yorkers is flyover country. You don't, you don't even think about it. Um, and you vaguely wonder if Mount Rushmore is in North or South Dakota. I mean, that kind of, <laughs> but what happened, and it, this actually has to do with success and failure in a way, because I was very young when my first book of poems was accepted. It was a, a, a pretty much a major publication prize and the grand sum of $500 in 1971, uh, which was a lot to me then. And, um, I had this little manuscript I had submitted to this competition from Follett Books, Big Table. That was the Big Table series of Younger Poets competition for a first book. And much to my surprise, I won. And that was a great success. But it also proved to be a failure in a way because it was very difficult for me to write. Um, After that book came out and was published, it was very difficult for me to start in again and write poetry again. Probably the worst things I've ever written in my life came out of that interim period um, after my first book and, and, and between that and my first book and my second book of poems. And it was kind of a shock. And, and there was a lot of jealousy among other writers in New York um, and all that stuff. And I just was it was a very odd time. I wasn't prepared for it. Uh, fortunately, I had a job I loved and, and, and I met my husband there. And when my grandparents died, 
uh, I got this crazy idea of moving to South Dakota. I had spent my summers there as a child. I knew my grandparents very well, my mother's parents. Um, this little town in western South Dakota, uh, I guess 40 miles right on the North Dakota border and only about 40 miles east of Montana. So it really is kind of the middle of nowhere to most people. My husband and I decided, well, let's go out there. We were young writers. Uh, he didn't have his first book yet. Um, young writers decided to, to give this a try. Of course, we ended up staying for 25 years. Um, but it proved to be a wonderful place for me to write, to get away from sort of the literary hothouse of New York City and focus on uh, other, other things, the land, the... Um, the ranchers, the people, my grandparents' old friends, um, who were very happy to see uh, my husband and a young two young people move into what they called Doc Totten's house, my, my grandfather's house, grandparents' house, um, and all of that. And so that really did prove to be a wonderful move for me as a writer. It took a full 10 years for me to publish another book of poems, but between the success of falling off in 1971 and then in 1981 uh, the middle of the world uh, was the second book that was published by Pittsburgh and um, and I think for me 10 years between uh, books of poetry is probably pretty good it, it kind of defies American uh, you know what's your next book what's your next project you know the American push to always keep uh, succeeding always keep publishing all that kind of stuff but 10 years, and so that that was kind of the the push behind that move. What I didn't realize was that it would eventually end up um, driving me towards prose. And of course, when you publish poetry, there's a wonderful story in the, the Archie and Mahitable that publishing a book of poems is like put, tossing a feather into the Grand Canyon and waiting for the echo. <laughs> Not a lot of attention. But when sometimes when you publish a book of prose, people are more likely to pick it up, read it, and respond. And, and that's kind of what ended up happening. I could not have predicted that when I moved to South Dakota, but that's what ended up happening. And the, um, the whole subject of the farm crisis in the early 80s uh, proved to be too big for my poetry. I had to turn to prose. And that... Um, ended up with my book, Dakota, Spiritual Geography, ended up being published in 1993, I think it was. When you thought about entering into writing prose, was were you as surprised as any that you started to write a Dakota and a cloister walk and Amazing Grace, this kind of, I don't know, reburgeoning faith life for you? I know you talked about going back to the church that your grandmother went to as a child, can you talk a little bit about that, about the, the going to prose, but also prose as you're reflecting on your own faith life? Well, and that was another unexpected thing, because I really, I'd been to my grandparents' church, the little Presbyterian church in this town since I was a kid. Um, but, you know, I, I was educated kind of in that classic American way of sort of thinking, well, you know, churches for Old, old ladies and kids, I'm an adult, I'm, I'm too intellectually superior to really care much about religion and everything. So I had sort of imbibed some of those attitudes in, in my education. And when I first started going back to church, it's only a couple doors down, it was land actually that my grandparents donated to that church. When my mother was a girl, she had a horse on that on that property. It's just a little 
you know, one city lot. But I would go up there and it was really an exercise in nostalgia. And much to my surprise, it started to become much more than that. It, um, I got to know not only the pastors of that church, but a number of the other pastors in town. And one of the ministers commented, this town is so small that the poets and the ministers have to hang out together. <laughs> and they had books. I had books that they wanted to read. They had books I wanted to read. Uh, it, it, it proved to be a very fertile time for my writing and for my spiritual life. Um, and then in Dakota, I, I write, I, I had discovered this monastery about 90 miles north, which means it was a close neighbor out in that area. Um, I discovered a monastery. I'd also ended up joining this little Presbyterian church. And so all of that ended up in, in this book, Dakota. The, the main impetus for that writing Dakota was the farm crisis and what was happening in these small towns. But the religious aspect became more and more a part of it as well. You re- recently wrote or an article for the Christian Century magazine, uh, and a, a large theme of that is about failure and success. And in the article, I found it interesting, and you talked about this a little bit with this American way of thinking to con- constantly publish and constantly produce. And you talk in the article that it can be a painful subject when someone asks you, what are you working on now? And so yes. could you talk a little bit more about that? What, why is that painful for you? Well, yes. How, why can't it be painful for you? I think it can be painful for a lot of writers if if you're feeling kind of stuck. You you're not quote quote producing. Um, and what happened to me? I had this this about a ten year period where I was really writing a lot. I had uh, Dakota, then Cloister Walk, then Amazing Grace, The Virgin of Bennington. All those books came out in in pretty quick succession. And the next book was much more difficult. Acedia and Me was a much more hard, a much more difficult book to write, but um, I, I really had a lot of success and a lot of productivity. And all of a sudden, I keep telling people Ocedia wore me out, which is kind of an in-joke, but because that's what Ocedia does. It's, it, it, it stops you cold in your tracks. But I all of a sudden found myself in late middle age, I guess, when people would say, what are you working on now? I kind of go, uh, not much. And that was a whole new experience for me. And reaching an age where you think, well, I am, am I ever going to write another book? Um, trying to keep writing alive by writing shorter pieces, like Forgive Us This Day, um, commissioned work like the for that essay for the Christian century. So it was a whole new phase of, of the writing process for me to deal with um, failure. And also I, I did work on a book about my sister and both my editor and my, um, I worked very hard on this and it's a real labor of love for me, but both my editor and my agent who I've worked with for over 20 years said, no, this isn't working. So I had a, a absolute failure, you know, against kind of, I have to stop and say, well, what's wrong with it? I, and I'm still looking to find it find out what I can do with that. And of course, anyone, any seamstress can tell you that trying to fix something, mend something or redo something is much more difficult than just starting over from starting from scratch. So I'm in this kind of weird state and I have another book project that had a lot of false starts that is uh, probably a little more viable than the book about my sister, but it is a very, um, um, it's a difficult period. And when, so when people ask you that, you know, 
what's your next book going to be about? You just have to say, well, I don't know. Have you got to the point where you're okay saying that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. A CD wore me out. I I, I got uh, infected with a CD and I'm too lazy to write. I mean, I would make up all kinds of things, but, but basically just, yeah. um, Hoping something will spark having faith that it will, but it's been a long time. I mean, I think a CD came out. Oh, I I remember exactly when a CD came out. It was a day in 2008 when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. It was a crazy time to be publishing a book but very interesting because uh, talk about failure on the road. I would, for the first time, I I had a really great book tour nationwide book tour on that, but for the first time people were coming up to the, to the readings and saying, I really like this. I want to buy the book, but I just lost my job. Mm. And I would say, well, that's what libraries are for. It got a good review in library journal. So your, your local library will is likely to have it, you know, and trying to encourage people. But it was a crazy time to be traveling in the country and uh, hearing things like that. Yeah. Would you mind talking a little? I mean, uh, I'd love to talk about Acedia for a little bit. You wrote the book Acedia and Me in, in 2008. And so first, I'm wondering, for those who may be unfamiliar with the term, if you could just talk a little bit about it. And the in, in the book, you talk about both the similarities and differences between this and, say, depression. But I'm also really curious to hear your thoughts on Acedia versus during COVID, <laughs> which I'm sure has come up uh, a lot. But we'll start with, first, if you could just talk a little bit about Acedia uh, and define it for those who may be unfamiliar with it. It's an ancient term. Um, it, it hasn't been used a whole lot since the, or well defined really since about the fourth century with monastic people. Um, it's a, it's a, I, for the ancient monks, the desert fathers and mothers in the fourth century, pride, anger, and acedia were the worst of the demons or bad thoughts that they had to deal with. And acedia is this curious, devastating mixture of restlessness and boredom. And um, the idea that nothing is worth doing. Um, And in the sixth century, it got sort of subsumed into the sin of sloth, which sort of came to mean physical laziness. So the the fairly powerful spiritual import of Asidia kind of became lost. And um, so those those fourth century monastics still have the best insight into it. And so I just... And when I found their definitions of it, I realized that I'd been suffering from it since I was about 15 years old. And it was a whole new thing. You know, you you read something, oh, my God, this person is describing something I've experienced, but I never knew what to call it. And that triggered uh, that book. And in writing it, I knew immediately I had to try to distinguish it from depression because acedia is something that can be recognized and resisted. Uh, Depression is obviously an illness, and it requires a very different sort of treatment and everything. So that was one of the things I I had to do in the book. And I think the distinctions aren't crystal clear. They're not terribly definite because acedia shares things with depression. Depression shares things with acedia. But ultimately, uh, there's a difference. And monastic people are still very good at distinguishing those. I, I talked to an abbot once about acedia. He said, oh, everybody here goes through it. But if the, if, the, if the person in charge of formation comes, I've got a young novice, and I don't know if he has acedia or if he's really depressed. And they try to determine. If it's depression, they'll send him to a psychologist. 
or psychiatrist. If it's just a senior, they say, welcome to the club. Everybody here runs into that wall where you think, oh, my God, am I going to have to do this the rest of my life? Um, this boring routine, this all of that. So, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting dilemma to try, but you really can't make terribly sharp distinctions between the two. Um, you just kind of go with your instinct to figure out which one it is. For myself, I'd say that if I'm depressed, I know why. Mm. My mother died was a particularly difficult period for me, and it was depression. With the sedia, there's no cause. It just is. It just shows up one morning. I wake up. I think, oh, today's going to be a good day. No, it's not. Okay. You know, that voice saying, no, it's not. Nah. Why even get out of bed? Um, so for me, that's what, that's yeah. kind of how I look at it for myself. What are your thoughts? It would seem like there are numerous people who maybe have experienced that during the pandemic. Uh so I'm curious about your reflections on that. I got asked about that very early on, um, right after the, the shutdown, you know, when my gym shut down, I, you know, I decided it wasn't safe to ride the city bus, those kinds of things. I got a call from a national Catholic reporter who wanted to do a, an article. Well, you've written about Acedia and everybody's experiencing it now. What do you have to say to us? And I said, my God, and they ended up being, I ended up being the front page story. And I thought it took a pandemic to get me on the front page of the National Catholic Reporter. And, <laughs> Thank you, Acedia. This is, you know, Acedia doesn't do any good for anyone. But in this case, it it kind of did. So it was really kind of funny. And, and uh, but yeah, I've, I've been asked about it quite a bit during the pandemic. And because I think for a number of people, it probably was the first time they ever really had to slow down so much and experience what some of those desert monastics experienced. Because a lot of these people had left the cities, they'd kind of gone off the grid to live in the desert, and they found that they took all their problems with them, their emotional problems, the temptation to greed and anger and pride and acedia. And of course, if you're in the desert, you can't go any place, you can't do anything, you're just supposed to live this life of prayer. But you with very few distractions, acedia comes right in. And all of a sudden, the people who are used to commuting to work and being around other people and having this sense of meaning in their lives, uh, all of a sudden, that was gone. And so I was glad I was being asked about it because I do think for the first time, I think a number of people did experience that, that classic form of, of acedia. Yeah. I wasn't surprised at all uh, to read about people you know, flocking to psychiatrists, people having trouble sleeping, people seeking psychiatric medications, all of that. And it was funny because I slept just fine. And I, and I think partly because I knew so much about acedia, I knew kind of how to resist that those temptations to just despair. And what I did was I just started walking. Um, I gym closed, so I began walking. And sometimes I'd walk five miles a day. And I learned a lot about Honolulu. It was Honolulu was kind of a cool city to walk around in. And um, that was one of the ways I dealt with it, just to get physically outdoors, active. And it was a it was in, it was inspiring to see in the early morning before it would get hot in the early morning to see the garbage guys at work, people delivering mail, uh, uh, handy van drivers, you know, going around. And often if I would 
encountered the male people on the street, I'd say, you know, you guys are the highlight of my day right now, whatever comes in the mail. And so we'd have these little chats and it really did relieve that pressure of despair that Ocedia brings along with it. Yeah. Well, one of the things in all of your books uh, that I read, but if certainly there's a, a certain amount of vulnerability anytime anyone kind of writes something out of their own experience, um, that's there. And I was impressed going back to the Christian Century article, and you write about helping lead a retreat for writers. And you had mentioned the, the books that you were re- writing, including the one about your sister. And while you were leading this retreat, you started to share part of the book with the people on the retreat. And if I remember correctly, in the article you wrote about that one of the retreat leaders kind of looked at you quizzically, like, how could you do that? Because for a lot of writers, of course, it's so hard to share their writing, and yet you were willing to to do that. And so have you always been that vulnerable, or has that been something that has kind of come as you have grown as a person and as a writer? Well, as a young writer, I never could have done what I did. And what I did, the thing that's, that shocked the retreat leader was I said, okay, folks, I have this book in progress. I want you to listen carefully and tell me what's wrong with it. That's what I did. And I could never have done that as a young writer. And there, because I wanted to see, I knew what the reaction of my editor and agent had been. I didn't tell the people at the retreat this. I just said, I want to share this with you and tell me what, listen and tell me what's wrong. And they liked it. I mean, they liked some, they liked the stories I was telling, but one, I think at least two people did speak up and, and reflect some of the, some of the, um, uh, the response was similar to the response I got from my agent and my editor. And that it, it was very helpful to me to, to learn, to know that. And, and yeah, the other retreat leader said, I've never seen a writer do that. And I said, well, I just figured I have a, I have an audience here. They're, 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 they've, they've a lot, they've read my work. They'll be thrilled to hear something new from me, but also they are well disposed toward me. I want to see what they think about this and how else can I learn that, you know? So, yeah, but as a young writer, I, I would have been much too defensive and uh, afraid to do something like that. But I guess, you know, there is that thing that comes with age where you just don't give a damn anymore. About <laughs> There is that freedom that, that you often comes, comes with age. You um, talk about uh, your having success um, or what, what is success both in writing and also in caregiving and talking about your giving care both to your husband and your mother when they were ill. And it seems to me like they're, they're pretty closely connected, at least as you describe them. And you write in Asidi and me, you talk about the need to be fully present and not be the center of attention. And so in those instances, both in caregiving and in writing, do you see those connections as well between the two, just having to be fully present without being the center of attention? Absolutely. In fact, I, I, I coined a phrase and Patricia Hample stole it, but I, I can, I'm almost, it almost have forgiven her for it. Taking, <laughs> taking the knee out of memoir. Hmm. because It's really important. And I, and both Patricia and I have judged, we talked about this. We judged um, manuscript competitions for nonfiction. And you see people writing about subjects that should be very interesting, but they, the writer can't get out of the way. Instead of learning something about, oh, I don't know, sheep shearing in Australia was one thing I recall. It's, it's me, 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 look at me, look at me, look what I'm doing, look what I'm feeling. The writer is just too too much present in, in the book. And what you really 
you can't really learn anything. It's like a barrier. And so being very conscious of not being the center of attention. And like with Dakota, having real places and real people to write about. Uh, all my books, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, like, and the cluster walk, I'm writing about Benedictine men and women. I'm not writing about myself all the time. I mean, I have my responses to things. I tell stories. I'm involved. But I think that's really, really important. And I, I, I see really the, the sin of our age seems to be narcissism and, and that wanting, thinking of oneself as the center of the universe. And I think for writing, it's really important for the writer not to do that. And caregiving, which I never anticipated that I would be able to do or be good at it or anything. Caregiving is a wonderful, humbling thing because you can't, you're not the center of attention. This other person is because they need so much from you. And one of the things that would happen sometimes when I was uh, touring with books and I'd be doing programs and people would say, well, gee, you seem so down to earth and humble. You know, you don't seem like you're, uh, you know, how, how do you stay so normal? I mean, I would get these weird questions and I say, oh, it's really easy because when I go back to Honolulu, my mom's going to ask me to help change her diaper, hmm. take out the garbage or do things like that. So and I said, being out like this is like playing author. But when I go back home, I just have to be her daughter or my husband's wife or do, do these, clean out my husband's commode, those kinds of things. And it proved to be a real grace um, caregiving is is really can be very depressing. And I certainly had times when it was, but I also came to see it as grace, partly because you're, you're able to spend time with this person who probably won't be there much longer. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're caring for someone who's quite ill, but it was also just that humbling thing of, yeah, get down to get down to earth here. I mean, so you write well, fine, but change the diaper, take out the garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, clean the commode. Yeah. I wanted to read a quote from Acedia and me having to do with, I guess, failure in, in one's faith life. And I'm curious about how people may be coming up to you and reflecting with you. So this, this is the quote. And you wrote, although I felt like a big nothing, I realized that the thoughtful letters I continued to receive from readers did mean something and that my work could be considered fraudulent only if I bought into the myth of spiritual celebrity By that, I mean the notion that people who write books on spirituality do so because they've got it all figured out and have somehow, quote, succeeded, unquote, at the spiritual life. Jesus reminds us, however, that it is not proficiency that heals us, but faith, and faith does not traffic in success and failure. And so I'm wondering if when folks come up to you, like at book signings and so on, or maybe they've reached out to you, do they come to you and are share their own vulnerability or like feeling like I'm not, I'm not a quote unquote success at the faith life too. Um, well, it's a variety of things. Um, and mostly it's people just wanting to share their own experiences because they've, they've had a, a spouse who died of cancer and they want to, they're responding to what I've talked when I've talked about my husband or my sister um, who had cancer. Uh, a lot of it is sharing and and at sacred time, you know, you just have to listen because they need to talk, and which is um, always really good. Um, I've only had one person, I think, who tried to really push me. I, I think I need you to be my spiritual uh, guide, my 
my spiritual director and I refused and she, and it was very interesting. Actually, she got quite angry Mm. and got very nasty. And I thought, well, I'm really glad I I didn't. And I just said, I am, I don't feel qualified to do this. It's not something I have time to do right now. And, and I know, and she was living in a city where I'm sure there were a lot of people. I tried to refer her to some places that she could go. And, and that's the only time anybody's ever sort of wanted me to be like a spiritual guru um, but it's always it is gratifying to know that what you write because you need to write it is actually meaning something to other people. I think that's one of the reasons people write anything, novels or anything, because you are reaching people in ways in really interesting ways that you could never have predicted. Um, and that's one of the joys, I think, of writing. Do you still on most days, are you able to? to be at a place where you can honestly say faith does not traffic in success and failure, or do you sometimes fall into the trap of like, I'm not, I'm not being a quote unquote good Christian. Um, I don't worry about that too much. And actually this is one area where the pandemic has been quite helpful because I'm not traveling so much. Hmm. I mean, I'm probably doing 80 to hundred thousand miles a year from Honolulu where I, where I grew up. I'm back there now, Honolulu to the mainland and back working. But because I was here for over a year, I got much closer to my church community. I'm on the prayer chain, and there were some years where we meet once a month. We've been doing it on Zoom now, but but we would we would meet once a month. And I remember there was one year I missed every meeting. This year, over this last year, we've gotten much closer. We're we're able to talk much more deeply. I've gotten much more deeply involved in the church itself both when we were on Zoom and now we're just starting to resume in-person worship and our little book club meeting and stuff. Um, And that has been really, really helpful. I guess I'm less concerned about, am I a good Christian or am I, you know, is my faith okay? Because just having been, having deepened that relationship with my church, Ohana, which is the Hawaiian word for family, because it really does feel like my family now, and it didn't before. And I think, church, you know, Christianity is a very communal religion. I mean, you, you need an individual uh, perspective and faith on it, but at heart, it, it, you know, that church community is, is where it's at, and that's where it's always been in the history, the whole history of the religion. It's a communal endeavor. Yeah, it sounds. I mean, I understood that from knowing the Benedictines because their whole world is based in the community. But I think for the first time, I've really experienced that community in a deeper way now for myself. It it seems like too part of this relates to some of the things that you write about getting smaller. So you you write in, in the article that rather than these books for a larger audience that you're finding some joy in writing things for what I assume are a smaller audience, like a daily devotional for uh, an Abbey. And then also in Acedia and me, when you talk about um, coming back from Acedia and you note that sometimes some of the helpful things are to do things like dusting a bookshelf or balancing your checkbook, or you mentioned earlier going for a walk. And so can you say a little bit more about finding um, hope and help and joy in, in these, in the small things. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think for writing, it, it was essential for me to keep writing small things just to keep that writing brain alive and to, and to keep that uh, to keep it going. And uh, uh, actually, Give Us This Day is the devotional. It comes out of liturgical press at St. John's in Minnesota. And Lit Press is one of the biggest religious publishing houses now in America. So it, it, it's, a small, it's a small audience, but not that small. And it's a really fun Right for it. it's a wonderful editor and these these are about 250 to 500 word pieces which I like I like that length and then the other thing I've just started doing this April I've got a friend from Belfast uh, Gareth Higgins we're doing a a, a bi-weekly e-newsletter called Soul Telegram mostly about film but also about books and so every two weeks I have to come up with a 500 to 800 word essay I got to write about the first Godzilla movie, uh, the first, the original Godzilla movie, which was banned in the U.S. for 50 years. You'll have to go to Soul Telegram to find out why. But I mean, it, and that's been enormous fun because I can write about anything I want to write about. And so I'm, I'm hoping that it will kind of liberate me to, to begin to really go back to some of the larger projects. But the small things have been... Um, life-giving I guess I I would say uh, for me and I think and I think the same thing is true for the small tasks it's not the you know big plans and dreams and everything are fine but you you know you do start out small yeah I when you wrote that when I read that there was a, a member of my church who posted on Facebook this is probably three or four years ago and he lives with depression and you know social media is its own world too and people will convey certain things that they want the world to know about them. But this person wrote, today I made my bed. And he, he was so pleased with him because for him, that was a sign of health to, because he lives with depression and yet today he made his bed. And that has always really stuck with me. It's kind of those just coming out of either depression or acedia to be able to do things like that. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that could be a powerful statement and I'm glad he shared it. You know, because for most people, and I must confess that that's an argument that I had with my mother for years, and I'm still not making my bed on any kind of consistent basis. But there are other things, um, taking out the garbage, um, dusting, which I hate to do. In fact, when I talk, when you were asked me about success and failure, one of my failures, absolute failures, is I'm a lousy housekeeper, always have been. Um, it, that is never going to change. And um I struggle with that, but I don't give it a lot of emotional weight either. I've just mm. sort of accepted. Uh, in fact, if somebody, a realtor came into my apartment to look at some new, uh, I put up uh, wooden or bamboo drapes instead of cloth. And uh, she came to look at them and I said, I'm sorry for all the clutter. And she said, oh, no, this just looks like a writer's place. And I said, well, thank you. It is full of well, I usually end these conversations by asking um, my conversation party uh, partner to share a story of failure, which can be about anything, whether it's big or small, serious or funny, uh, something that happened yesterday or several years ago. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing something. One's recent and serious, and one is years ago and it was faintly hilarious. Um, for the first time in my life, I had to give up on what I thought was a friendship. Um, because the person involved proved to just be too self-deluded and narcissistic for me to really, I realized it was much more, he was, he was just um, 
much more ill than I had realized, and I really couldn't help. And in, in a sense, I was part of the problem because one of his real fixations was on my success as a writer, that he was friends with the famous, what he would call a famous author, which is not a phrase I you ever use. And so I basically, for my own sanity, I had to tell him, I said, you know, this is not about you. It's about me. And knowing that everything's always about him, he, that wouldn't register on him. I said, that's not about you. It's about me. And I need to keep my distance from you now because for my own less stress in my life, uh, a number of things, he didn't react too well to that. But that's another story. But the but the really funny, but I feel bad about that because the first time in my life, I really had to deliberately walk away from a friendship. And um, that was hard. The hilarious one was when we first moved to South Dakota and this young couple, childless couple, and I was asked to um, be the leader of a Girl Scout troop. Wonderful fourth grade girls. And I get along with kids and I got along with this group. And in fact, I think the, the girls came to feel a little sorry for me because it was obvious to them that I lacked all sorts of competence that they took for granted in their mothers and in adults in general. I was just, especially the arts and crafts, Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I was having to try to follow the, the things in the, the troop leaders guidebooks. If I'd just been on my own, I might have been a little more successful. But all, all of our uh, arts and crafts projects were dismal. It was it was actually <laughs> it was actually pretty funny. And, and I still know a couple of some of those girls. They're married have kids of their own and everything now all, all is forgiven but I remember thinking I'm never going to try to do this again because I'm just no good at it <laughs> well uh, I appreciate you sharing sharing both of those um, well Kathleen Loris thank you so much for uh, spending time your books were very inform- were uh, formative for me in my the beginning of my own ministry and in fact i for several years, made uh, regular treks to a Benedictine monastery in the Chicago area and was influenced by that. So I'm grateful for that. And we'll also let people know not only about your books, but about Soul Telegram too, so that they uh, might be engaged with you today in that way. Thank you. And that's this month's episode. Thanks again to Kathleen for giving her time for this conversation. You can learn more about Kathleen and how to subscribe to Soul Telegram on her Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Kathleen Norris Author. To learn more about my ministry and back episodes of this podcast, you can go to christiancoon.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.